Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am back with one of my favourite people. It's Kit. Kit, who have we got on today? We are we have returning guest John Sadler, who you might remember from his episodes on D-Day and the history of the Anglo-Scottish borders and the border reavers and why Neil Armstrong should have been hanged. Um, and he's here to talk to us today about heavy water sabotage during the Second World War up in Norway, stopping the Germans getting the atomic bomb, um, if they could have ever done that at all. So, Alina, shall we begin? Do you know what? I just Before we do begin, I obviously brought you on this because I saw the words atom bomb science <laughs> and I knew this was going to be your cup of tea. So I just thought you'd be the best person to do this with. Thank you very much. Um, so my PhD is actually in, on the Manhattan Project, which ah. is was it, that was a successful bomb attempt yeah. um, rather than the the. Frankly, and I, I apologise for language in advance, the clusterfuck that was the uh, the Nazi-led attempt. Right, <laughs> should we dive in, John? Uh, because yeah, crack on, crack on, yeah. Going going with the with the uh, with the Nazi attempt, it's all about heavy water for them. Mm-hmm. So, explain to us in simple terms what is heavy water and why did they think it was so important? Heavy water is deuterium oxide, which, in the case of the Norse hydro plant, was a byproduct of the fertiliser production which was the main business of the plant. The plant was not set up to manufacture heavy water. But the Germans, and indeed many in the field of nuclear fission prior to the start of the Second World War, had the belief that heavy water was important, an important factor in stabilising the process with, within a reactor for nuclear fission. And the Germans persisted with this sometime after the Allies, as, as you mentioned, the Manhattan Project, which was steaming ahead and the Germans were actually falling further and further behind. The, As you have pointed out, I'll put it in a slightly different terms, the organisation on the German side was muddled in the extreme. <laughs> That's, That's far more polite. Pretty politely. The fact was that um, whilst there were good ideas there, whilst uh, there were possibilities there, the Germans were never really in the race. Now, of course, the Allies... In 94. We didn't know that. That's the important thing. The important thing from the Allied perspective is that we didn't know how far back the Germans actually were. And if we compare the Manhattan Project with the German effort, there is no comparison. The Manhattan Project, I mean, you know far more about that than I do, but it was, it was an astonishing achievement. 
I know it led to nuclear weapons. I, I know that there, there are moral questions. But in terms of the science, in terms of the logistics, in terms of the genius behind the whole thing, it was brilliant. No, no ways about it. The Germans had brilliant minds, but of course they'd prejudiced their own position at this, before the war by excluding anyone who was Jewish. And of course, some of the finest nuclear physicists in the world uh, were Jews, and they were therefore excluded from the German effort uh, on racial and ideological grounds. So they were they were busy shooting themselves in the foot before they'd even started. Uh, however, and this is crucial to our understanding of the telemark, right, the Allies did not know that. We know now the Germans could not viably have invaded Britain in 1940, but we didn't know that at the time. So we can only judge the response and how we, the Allies, acted in the light of the information which was available to SOE and indeed to Allied High Command at the time. And given the Armageddon possibilities of nuclear warfare, of course, as well, horribly demonstrated at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's not something you can afford to take a chance on. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And uh, but just just to just to explain it, because I think people might not know what deuterium is. So this is just a heavier version of hydrogen, right? It's just got an extra yes. neutron. Yes, uh, and it's quite an exhaustive process. It's it's a difficult process to produce the stuff. And I, when I was looking at the book, I researched and I looked at the science exhaustively. To be fair, I barely understood a word of it. But um, uh, if you were going to uh, produce a nuclear weapon by the means which the Germans were pursuing and which the Allies had also looked at, then a significant quantity of heavy water was an essential component to ensure um, a viable nuclear fission process. Uh, so, uh, for me, the Germans end up occupying Norway, and I'm curious to know if the Allies are uh, concerned at all with regard to the well, heavy water. Was this, a, was this a concern for them that they were occupying and there is that chance? Initially, the, Germ the Germans occupied Norway, obviously, in the spring of 1940. They did that for reasons totally unconnected with the development of nuclear weapons. The Germans were anxious to protect their steel supply, or iron ore supply, which was coming in from Sweden and went out through the Norwegian port of Narvik. So the Allies' attempt, doomed attempt, to intermeddle in Norway was based on trying to interdict German supplies of iron ore and also to deny the Germans access to the Norwegian fjords. In the Great War, Britain had effectively blockaded Germany and that naval blockade had contributed, contributed significantly to Germany's final defeat. Obviously, if the Germans occupied the whole of that long fissured coastline of Norway with its many long and deep fjords, then there could be no naval blockade. So the reasons why the Germans invaded Norway in 1940 were strategic, and at that point were generally unconnected to the production of heavy water. That was, if you like, a bonus point, which accrued after they had invaded. Well, let's move on to the Allied side. So we know that they've now got this this heavy water. Werner Heisenberg leading the uh, the German charge uh, for this. Obviously, we need to start disrupting that, but we don't have those special forces at this point to do that. So, what does this lead to the creation of um, to disrupt this occupation? 
The, you're perfectly right. I mean, when the German Fashimiaga landed on the roof of Eban Emil, the great Belgian fortress, on May 10th, 1940, this was a wake-up call to the eyes. We did not have uh, a parachute paratrooper capability at that point. We did not really have commandos in the sense that we would now understand it. Um, what was happening, you had the ad hoc uh, special forces like the Long Range Desert Group, which were forming in the Western Desert, but largely they were, if you like, private enterprise rather than any form of state-guided policy. Churchill, of course, wanted, in his fav- famous expression, to set Europe ablaze, which was the basis for SOE. So Special Operations Executive was set up, much to the annoyance of the Special Intelligence uh, Service, Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, to create acts of sabotage, carry out acts of sabotage, throughout the occupied territories. Remember, in May, June 1940, the spring of 1940, Hitler took over most of Europe. It was the most astonishing and rapid series of conquests that had been seen since the days of Genghis Khan. If you think 1914-1918, the Western Front barely moved for three years, and yet in less than three months, Hitler has literally overrun the whole of mainland Europe, Now, which brought his armies to the channel. But of course, it also creates a problem for him as Churchill saw, he has to garrison and control those areas. So the Allied thinking behind the need for sabotage is a means of striking back at the Nazi hegemony in Europe. We are not, in 1940, in any position to carry out any major offensive against the Germans in Europe. Obviously, the war, as we know from December 1940, the main focus of the British effort is in the Western Desert. And that's initially directed against the Italians. It's standard British policy to attack the weakest link in the partnership. But Fortress Europa, Festung Europa, uh, must have appeared to anybody in 1940 as being utterly invincible. The Allies, our conventional forces, had been chased out of Europe, reinforced to evacuate through Dunkirk. The British Army left all of its kit, its vehicles, its guns, everything of any substance was left behind on the beaches for the Germans to salvage, which they did. Um, by the, I think by the time of El Alamein in 1942, second El Alamein, the Germans were driving far more British vehicles than we were because they salvaged so many from all the various defeats that we had sustained in 1940 and indeed adding Crete to the mix in 1941. So the idea of using special forces, commando forces, to initiate a series of what? In many ways, strategic were pinprick attacks. These are attacks which would have an effect on morale. It would also have an effect on the Germans. It would oblige them to take frontline troops to garrison at perceived uh, strategic weak points, as in the Western Desert, the attacks of the Long Range Desert Group and then the Special Air Service obliged Rommel to withdraw frontline German troops to defend his airfields which had hitherto been held by Italian troops, who uh, turned out not to be entirely reliable. And uh, Rommel couldn't afford to lose more aircraft. Due to commando activity, he was hemorrhaging aircraft. The SAS and LRDG between them destroyed hundreds of German planes. These were planes that Rommel couldn't replace. So in the Western Desert context, special forces had a material effect. In Europe, it was different, because all that really could be achieved would be a series of pinprick raids, the one major raid we attempted was in uh, August 1942, was Operation Jubilee, the Dieppe raid, which of course turned out to be a total disaster. So this perception that the production of heavy water in facilitate the German uh, exploration of means of developing an atomic bomb and the development of special forces were happening at the same time. 
And the third factor was that many brave young Norwegians, the company Linger men, uh, who were not prepared to accept the defeat uh, and the surrender of Norway in 1940, were leaving Norway and coming into Britain, into Scotland, and obviously looking for a means to strike back. And these were fit and, as history would show, extremely brave and competent young men who were ideal material for commando forces, especially for any raid directed against Norway, because, of course, they understood the country. Many of them were natural skiers. They had already a lot of the skill set that was needed to make them effective special forces. So I think it's fair to say that it takes a special kind of weirdo to become a commando, at least by our standards. So talk to us about some of the, talk to us about some of the colourful characters uh, that we have uh, facing the Germans. In many ways, these were, uh, as Richard Holmes would have said, they were ordinary men, but they were also ordinary men who did extraordinary things in extraordinary times. We see with Paulson and the whole team that when the war is over, they go back to their civilian jobs. A few of them stay in the military as a, as a professional career. But by and large, they go back to their pre-war jobs. They're motivated by a deep love of their country, outrage in the, uh, at the way in which the Germans have invaded and are oppressing their country, an oppression which grew steadily more onerous as the war uh, went on. Uh, they hate Quisling. And the other neo-Nazis, who, of course, uh, have a pretense of exercising power in Norway under the Germans. And they want to hit back. They have already a high percentage part of the skill set needed to make successful commanders. They will have some military training. They're physically very fit. They're outdoorsmen for the most part. They're not city men. They understand. They know how to ski cross country. And they know how to live off the land. They're hunters. They're good shots. And they know that several of them are from the region in which they will be deployed. So they have a good working knowledge of the landscape, which are huge advantages in terms of special forces operations. And British commanders, however well-trained, would not have those advantages. So they are already, in terms of their skill set, halfway there. In terms of their mindset, they're all the way there. I think uh, I've got to jump in and because one of my favourite characters in, in the entire Second World War is, is Leif Tronstad, um, yeah. who began as a chemistry professor. Yeah. I mean, that, he's, uh, he's the Kirk Douglas character in, in Heroes of Telemark, yeah. if anyone's familiar with him. Uh, obviously, dealing with things predominantly back in Europe with the, with the government, but he's going around London with Vivian Lee at the time, um, yes. as well as helping coordinate this incredible series of raids. Tronstadt is, I mean, you're quite right to idealise Tronstadt. He is um, a great man. He's a humane man, a decent man, a very good family man. And of course, the tragedy of his case, he never, he did not live to be reunited with his family. Uh, and he would know from the outset that he was taking huge risks Firstly, in obviously joining with the fledgling resistance movement, then of course escaping to London, leaving his family behind, and that's that's no, uh, that's a big commitment by anybody's standards. And then he was able to exercise influence and pressure, uh, not just on the government in exile, but also through SOE and through the British government. So Tronstadt uh, was a very influential figure. He knew the subject, of course. He knew about heavy water. Uh, he'd been responsible for its development, in part, in Norway. So, again, he had all the attributes that were necessary 
to do the job, which was, and it was not an easy job. It eventually demanded he make the final sacrifice in 1945. So, yes, I would say Tonstadt is a very great man. Okay, I'm going to jump in. Let's talk about some operations here. Mm. Where does Operation Muscatoon come into all of this? What is it? Tell us a little bit more about it. Operation Muscatoon sounds a bit like a Gilbert and Sullivan uh, production, but it wasn't, obviously. It was part of the SOE policy and the commando policy of launching a series of raids against uh, exposed German installations around the coast of Europe. Norway was an obvious target because the Germans relied heavily on mineral production coming from Norway. The very long extended coastline and steeply mountainous interior made it a very difficult area to police. The Germans simply could not garrison the whole of of Norway. And Muscatoon was, it was both a precedent for the Telemark raids and also a warning because, of course, those who were captured were murdered in accordance with Hitler's commando befehl, the commando order, which effectively declared that anybody taking part in a covert operation, even if he or she was in uniform, was nonetheless a bandit and was not entitled to protection under the Geneva Convention. In short, any commander that was caught would be summarily executed. Now, that was a big shift in international law, and there were an awful lot on the German side who were not happy about it. But Muscatoon did achieve a tactical purpose. It did disrupt the German war effort. On the other hand, you could say that it also gave the Germans notice that SOE was liable to carry out operations uh, in Norway itself. So in, in one sense, it served a purpose. In the another sense, it perhaps made the job of Grouse Swallow and Gunnerside that bit more difficult. But it also, it was a wake-up call for the Allies who realised that those that commanders, and in our book, commandos, say like German paratroopers or Brandenburgers, were sold as in uniform. They would be treated as POWs if they were caught. It was now perfectly plain uh, throughout Hitler, because of Hitler's order in October uh, 1942, uh, that those who were captured stood a very good chance of being executed. Murdered, in fact, out of hand, as, of course, was horribly the case with freshmen. And moving on to Freshman, obviously, November 1942, what is Operation Freshman? What's its target? What's it going for? And and what happens? Freshman was Britain's real first attempt at a glider-borne operation. And that's an important factor. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
the wake-up call which German paratroop operations, successful paratroop operations, during the fall of France and Belgium, that notice which had been served on the Allies had uh, reinforced the need to develop an airborne capability, which we did not previously have. So this really was a first attempt at mounting an airborne operation. And with hindsight, it's possible to see you couldn't have chosen a worse region in which to attempt your first operation because of the weather conditions, because of the nature of the ground and the fact that we were still experimenting, really, with airborne operations. Freshman was an attempt, was an attempt directly to attack the Norsk Hydro plant. The initial thinking was that uh, Team Grouse, who were on the ground, because it was such a small team, could not undertake the mission themselves, that the plant would have to be assaulted by a much larger commando force, and that commando force would be brought in by two towed gliders. Now, that meant that these gliders would have to take off in winter conditions from airfields in Scotland, being towed by bomber aircraft, and there was no precedent for this. And that then they would be uh, released onto a landing ground, in theory marked out by grouse and swallow. That depended on the efficacy of the uh, radio locating devices, Eureka and Rebecca. And uh, unfortunately, these devices, again, were new technology and they didn't work very well. Everything that could have gone wrong with freshmen did go wrong, with the result that both gliders crash-landed, one of the towing bombers crash-landed, the entire crew were killed. Quite a number of the paratroopers involved in both glider-borne flights were killed or injured on impact. Amazingly, a significant number survived, but they had no means of escape, they had no real means of orientation, and they thought, thought that they could simply surrender. They thought they could lay down their arms and surrender to the German authorities and that they would be treated in accordance with the Geneva Conventions as prisoner of war. However, uh, sadly, experience proved that that was not the case, and all of them uh, were, in fact, down to the last man, were murdered by the Germans. So we've had two failures. What is next on the plan? Operations up to now hadn't been a total failure because the Grouse later Swallow team had been successfully infiltrated onto the Hadanga Plateau, and the Germans didn't know they were there. They were very lucky. It was due to their skill and tenacity that they survived these harsh winter conditions. But that meant that the Allies actually had a platform. They had a base from which to go for plan B, if you like, which was the second team of Norwegian commandos, Gunnerside, to be dropped onto the plateau. And they had plenty of adventures of their own. But eventually the two teams were united. And they then were a perfectly placed strike force to carry out the successful raid. Uh, in February, in early uh, 1943. Well, you've set it up perfectly. Let's talk about Operation Gunnerside and the raid against yeah. the heavy water production. So the plan was the plan was that the team of commandos, actually nine men would go into the plant, would attack the plant on dark and stormy night in such a way, ideally, not to fight their way in, uh, but to infiltrate without the Germans knowing they were there. This was not an assault in the sense of the classic commando assault where you simply shoot your way in, they would find a way in and they did it in a most remarkable manner by scaling the cliff beneath the plant itself. The Germans thought this couldn't be done. Now this, if this hadn't actually happened, 
it would have to be written by Alistair McLean. It was a where he goes there job. Uh, it is one of the most remarkable feats of military achievement, I think, in the history of the Second World War. Certainly one of the most remarkable commando operations. The reality was the team were able to approach the plant, uh, to come down one side of the deep valley, cross the river just because the ice was melting, managed to scale their way up the cliff, which Halberg had already uh, wrecked, and he was right, to access the railway line, which led directly into the plant. They proceeded along the railway line, um, cut the padlock on the gates, which led them into the compound, and then whilst half the team stood guard, the other half actually carried out the mission. And of course, with having people like uh, Tronstadt and Jürgen Brun on their side in London, they knew exactly what they were doing. This was key. The technical knowledge which had been bequeathed to them by their Norwegian contacts meant that they were not literally, excuse the pun, in the dark. They knew exactly what they were doing. And they were able to carry out the raid surgically. There were no casualties amongst the civilian staff. They even found the spectacles of the guy who'd lost them. There were no, even no casualties amongst the German guards. They planted the explosions, explosives where they needed to be planted, uh, exfiltrated from the plant, went back down the cliff uh, of which they had ascended, and got cleared away across the valley. When the explosions in- occurred in the basement of the main building, there's a lot of noise going on. The Germans initially didn't twig to the fact that their precious supply of heavy water had just gone up in smoke. And so the commandos, largely thanks to the uh, incompetence of the Germans and their own courage and ingenuity and fitness, were able to get free and able to disappear, if you like, back into the hinterland by the time the Germans had really woken up to what had actually happened. As you can imagine, uh, General von Falkenhorst, the German uh, commander-in-chief, was not very pleased, and apparently quite a number of the guards found their way, uh, found they had a one-way ticket to the Eastern Front thereafter. But the fact was the damage was done and the most perfect commando raid of all time with no loss of life on uh, civilian, military or enemy, no loss of life, and they got clear away. Brilliant. Of curiosity, is it necessary to send in bombers? Are they really needed at this stage? No. Um, That's a short answer. I'm not going to criticise our American friends, but they do like to drop bombs uh, in large quantities wherever they can. Uh, the fact was, Tronstadt had already warned, and his uh, the SOE in London knew that bombing, given the physical location of the plant, was likely to be ineffective. Uh, and the result, as Tronstadt had prophesied, would actually be civilian deaths. There were significant civilian deaths as a result of the bombing whilst there had been none as a result of the commando raid. The bombing was ineffective. The commando raid was highly effective. The only beneficial consequence of the bombing raid was that the Germans decided, or it confirmed their decision, to move their stocks of heavy water from Norway to Germany. And that obviously would be significant in that it provided the opportunity for the sinking of the Norse Hydro, which, of course, meant that the whole of their residual supply went straight down to the bottom of Lake Tinjo. And again, you've set us up beautifully because, obviously, this is, this is the, the culmination of, of the film The Heroes of Telemark, if anyone yeah. has seen it. But we do have the sinking of SF Hydro, which is a, it's a passenger ferry, basically. Can you talk us through that and, and these further operations in the area? Because, obviously, this does have a consequence. You've, you've spoken about the perfect commando raid. There are serious consequences for civilians in this one. 
Yes, uh, sadly there are. Now, the Norwegian government in exile was not made aware of, nor had they sanctioned the air raid, the bombing, which, of course, infuriated Tronstad rightly, beyond all reason, because all it did was vindicate everything he'd said. However, the Norwegian government in exile did sanction the raid uh, on the Norsk Hydro. They accepted the fact that this was going to happen and that inevitably, as a result of it, uh, there was no question but that there would indeed be um, civilian casualties. It was simply inevitable that there would be. And they simply had to take on, accept the fact that, that this would happen. Uh, the Haukalid, who was really the only one of the commanders in theatre at the time, planned this absolutely brilliantly. This, there weren't months and year, uh, weeks of planning in this. He had to pretty much play the whole thing um, off, the, off, off his chest and improvised with the bomb. And as a technical exercise in commando tactics, it was a brilliant job. He got on board the vessel. He knew the Germans would transport the heavy water via this vessel. He knew the most certain result was to ensure that the bomb went off whilst the ferry was over the deepest part of the lake, which it did, and that if he planted the charges uh, in the forward section of the boat, it would tilt, and the weight of the railway trucks carrying the heavy water would propel the whole lot into the lake, and they would sink to the very bottom and would be effectively be irrecoverable. All of that worked perfectly. But there's no escaping the fact that civilian passengers, German guards were killed, but then that's part of the, uh, that's a bonus if you like, but that there were civilian losses. There was no uh, way of getting around that. I suppose today we would call that collateral damage. Uh, and of course, a good horrible example going on in Gaza at the moment of uh, just how expensive collateral damage can be. So it was accepted that there would be civilian casualties, and indeed there were civilian casualties. What I think we call the arithmetic of war. It was judged better at the time that the heavy water stocks be destroyed and that the risk versus reward calculus would be that the Germans would effectively be denied any serious head start in the race of the atomic bomb. And, of course, had they got the bomb, then the loss of life flowing from that would have been incalculable. I think one thing we do need to discuss, though, obviously, we, we have talked about heavy water sabotage and the success of it, but the the German uh, bomb project was was as we've spoken already, not doing particularly well. Can you just sing it from the rafters and just explain to us why the Germans were never going to get an atomic weapon in the Second World War? Now, now we have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, we do. And yet, at the time, and even since people persist in the idea that the Nazi war machine uh, was this vast, hugely efficient behemoth um, that didn't make that many mistakes. In fact, it was chaotic. Hitler himself had limited belief in the capacity to build nuclear weapons. I think he liked the idea, obviously, but he wasn't sure that Germany could do it. And the manner in which the logistical aspects of the project were carried out meant that the responsibility was split between various departments. There was an awful lot of interdepartmental rivalry, which slowed things down. There were differing views as to what was the best approach. And there was gross underfunding. If we think, I think that the Manhattan Project, if I'm right, cost something like $500 million in the money of the day. Uh, Germany didn't have that level of resources, and nor was anything like that amount of money poured into the German atomic program. The Manhattan Project clearly shows that the Allies had grasped the bull by the horns 
understood exactly what they were about and went about it in what was a brilliant feat of organization, a superb feat of logistics, Bast backed up by a very significant checkbook. The Germans had none of that. And we're doomed to failure. You're actually underestimating. So the, the cost in, in, in 1940s terms was actually $2 billion for the Manhattan million. Project. Yeah. It was the second most expensive project of the Second World War after the development of the, um, uh, the bombers. Yeah, of course, yes. Yeah. That's $2 billion in the money of the day. If we multiply, absolutely, that, it's a, yeah, about thirty-five billion today. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money yes, um, <laughs> it's a very great deal of money. And and that, if we express that in modern terms, that it, to have the will and the capacity to direct such a huge amount of funding at a time when the Allies, of course, were under massive fiscal pressure anyway, with the cost of the war itself. This wasn't as if it was a standalone development. This was part of the Allied strategy to win the Second World War. And yet the leaders recognized that this investment, uh, investment of cash, investment of resources, investment of talent, investment of focus was necessary to produce a nuclear weapon, which was perceived as a war winning weapon, of course, which changed the whole nature of warfare. Germans were never anywhere near close, never anywhere near that. Thank God. Absolutely, indeed. One other question, just just sort of to wrap up. What happens to Norway afterwards? Because this is only part of the commando operations that are going on there at the time. Um, We still have a country under occupation. What happens to the people who have helped and assisted in these missions? The Norwegian resistance, of course, which kind of was stunned by the invasion in 1940, as you might expect. And it took a while for resistance to begin to build. But once it did begin to build, and once the nature of the Nazi oppression became more and more onerous, then significant resistance cells, the uh, Norwegian resistance um, log, war became a very effective organization. And, of course, was increasingly assisted by Allied commando operations. So that by 1945, when the Germans were on the back foot, there was a very powerful resistance organization Telemark Raid had been successfully launched. Of course, this was a great morale booster for Milog, which was the Norwegian resistance organization, who often felt that as part of the government exile, they were either overlooked or abused by SOE. But between 1942 and the end of the war, of course, most of those who'd served with genocide and Grouse went back. This was not their only exposure. Even once it, you might think they could feel they'd done their bit uh, once they got clear, but they went back to organize a growing number of resistance cells, which created havens within the Norwegian countryside. Again, very difficult for the Germans to police this area, especially as their own resources uh, were diminishing. And it's an achievement of the Norwegian resistance. Even at the end of the war, Germany still had 300,000 troops in Norway. Now, had the resistance not been so effective, then Hitler might have been able to redeploy some of those troops elsewhere, like on the Normandy beaches, which, of course, could have made a significant material uh, difference. And I think the Norwegians, the Norwegian people and the Norwegian resistance don't really get enough credit for the effort and the brilliance with which they disrupted German communications, they disrupted German withdrawal 
1945. But of course, at the same time, bear in mind that Tronstadt and others didn't want to see the Norwegian infrastructure damaged by sabotage at a time when the war was nearly over. Obviously, Norsk Hydro, we think of it purely in terms of the production of heavy water, but as a fertilizer plant, it was a very important part of Norway's peacetime economy. And therefore, Tronstadt rightly didn't think that the economic assets of the country should be sacrificed just to hasten the Germans on their way. At the same time, of course, the Norwegians had to try and prevent the Germans from destroying Norway's economic assets. The Germans, of course, as we know, had a scorched earth policy. When they withdrew, they liked to destroy everything behind them. But the resistance were highly effective in 1945 in harrying the Germans as the Germans' war effort began to collapse. And yet they kept all of those German troops grounded in Norway. So effectively, Norway became a huge POW camp for the Allies. And those German forces surrendered in 1945. And Norway was able to regain some element of normality. But it was a brilliant effort on behalf of the Norwegian people and the Norwegian resistance. And of course, the Shetland Islands, we shouldn't forget the Shetland bus and the service in terms of bringing in agents, bringing out agents, bringing in arms and supplies from the Shetland Islands uh, was also an important part of this campaign. So it is a it is a remarkable story. John, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Can you just remind our listeners the name of your book? Yeah, I certainly can, yes. It's called The Heavy Water War, Beating Hitler to the Bomb. Fabulous. We will get that into our bookshop just to Thanks remind me. our listeners to, well... Buy it. Yeah, buy it. Yeah. Well, they, want, they should grab a copy from our, from our bookshop. Why? That's- because uh, you get a bit of the money, we get a bit of the money, and the uh, Rainforest website doesn't get to launch their rocket into space or whatever they're doing now, so... Yeah. Creating the next atom bomb. I don't know. Something something creative, basically. But it's been great having you on, John. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.